thank you for coming on this third Sunday of Advent. If you're not familiar with the word Advent, it comes from a Latin word meaning to come. The Advent season, traditionally for the Christian church, begins four Sundays prior to Christmas Eve. It's that season when we reflect upon and celebrate the coming of Jesus to the earth and look ahead to his uh, second coming as well. This Advent season, we're doing something that we will continue through the other uh, Christian seasons of the year. And by Christian seasons, I'm talking about Lent and Easter and these seasons. We're reflecting upon uh, Jesus as he is presented in the Old Testament. And we're calling it House of Shadows. Now, this will consist of not just our Sunday morning worship services, but also some smaller gatherings and workshops, even some of those online. And if you want to learn about those, you can pick up one of these Shadows brochures at our resource center today or find it online. Why shadows? Why are we using that word? On the screen, you'll see a verse from the book of Colossians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Colossae, says, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. What he's essentially saying is, don't let people put you under Old Testament ceremonial forms of worship in some legalistic fashion. That's not how we get to God. And then he refers to these things as shadows. These are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. Shadows point to substance being Christ. The writer of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 8 is reflecting upon Old Testament priests who offer sacrificial gifts as the Old Testament law prescribed. And the writer says they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. So we're using the word shadow as uh, an indication of a future event. And we've been looking at the practices or, or promises or prophecies in the Old Testament that point to something far greater than themselves, the substance being Jesus, Jesus Christ himself. It's been said that the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, the Old is in the New revealed. What must have surely been one of the greatest revelations of Jesus in the Old Testament took place in a conversation that Jesus had with two of his followers after his resurrection from the dead on the Emmaus Road. You'll see on the screen the verses from the Gospel of Luke. Jesus joined these two of his followers, and they didn't recognize him initially. And they were talking about events that had transpired in Jerusalem, about his crucifixion, his resurrection that they'd heard about. And as he's revealing himself to them, he says to them, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, now when scripture refers to Moses in the New Testament, it's typically referring to the writings of Moses, the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Beginning there, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Wouldn't you have lo loved to have heard that conversation? Jesus himself pointing these things out. Now, 
We've been looking at the shadows this Advent season, and today we're going to look at a prophecy about the coming king, the advent of a king, Jesus. And it may seem a very unusual place to look for a prophecy about the advent of Jesus, and that is the book of Psalms, Psalm 2 that was read just a moment ago. Psalm 2, second psalm of the 150 in the book of Psalms, doesn't identify the author, the writer of the psalm. Uh, but in the New Testament, it's quoted quite a number of times, and it's attributed to King David. And uh, this remarkable psalm could really be broken into fourths, into quarters. There are 12 verses, and you, you could look at it in four parts of three verses each, and um, look at it by the one who's speaking. Commentator James Boyce breaks it out that way, and I think it's a good way to look at it. The first first uh, speech is connected with rebellious rulers. And we read in verses 1 to 3, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, we don't want God's rule. We don't want His king. We don't want His lordship. Let's burst His bonds. In the New Testament, the Christian church, when they suffered persecution for preaching Jesus, they pointed to this psalm. They prayed the words of this psalm because they identified this with the persecution of Jesus and of his followers. But more broadly, these words really reflect the age-old rebellion of the human heart against God. And I'm sure that we have all experienced that rebellion in our own hearts to, uh, to varying degrees. Why is it that human beings seem by nature to resist the lordship, the control, the guidance of the one who created us? Why is it that human beings, when frustrated or exasperated or angry, tend to blaspheme the name of the God who created us? This past week, I was trying to be a, a, a good husband to my wife, and we were going to watch something on TV, and I let her pick, and she said, how about the great British baking show? I said, oh, brother, okay, <laughs> your choice. I'll put your interest before my own. <clears throat> we watched, anybody ever seen the great British baking show? So a few hands up. Gosh, a lot of hands. My goodness. It must be a pop. Surprise that show is so popular. Well... <clears throat> We're watching this show, and they have interesting people on there, you know, cooking this different stuff in this competition. And, and um, it seemed like every other one was doing something wrong on this show. And they have subtitles because it's, you know, you never know if you're, you're getting those British words. You're hearing them quite correctly. They got subtitles, or at least we did. And what shocked me was every other one, when they expressed anger or exasperation, said, oh, my God, or in some form, use the name of God, every other one. And then this kind of strange-looking character who's on there every week, he, he uses the name of Jesus. And I'm going, why is it that humans are so prone to misuse the very name of the God who created us? Now, lest we judge others too harshly, let's consider that ourselves. That we need to treat the holy name, e even the word God, 
with a holy reverence. He's our creator. He's the one who made us. But it's in the human heart to resist that. The way we treat God's name says something about our respect and reverence for God himself. So in the first part of this psalm, we see this this rebellious world. Secondly, we see God the Father speaking, verses 4 to 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Now, I, I don't know of another verse that says God laughs, but it makes sense that when people seek to oppose his purposes and say, we're going to burst his bonds apart, God would laugh because he is the omnipotent creator of all things. And then he speaks, and what does he say? What is God going to do about this human rebellion? I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's what God's going to do about human rebellion. He's going to install his king. This is what's sometimes called a royal psalm. It's about kingship. And while, yes, it can be applied to King David, who wrote the psalm, there is a much more important application. And it is to a king that could not be a mere earthly king. It is to a king who will rule forever. And that is the one who ultimately is being spoken of here. Thirdly in the psalm, the son speaks. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The first thing to notice is this. The Lord speaks and the Lord has a son. What does that tell us? God is triune. That is, God exists eternally. One God, the one true God the creator of all things, he exists eternally as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. This doctrine, this belief in the Trinity is one of the most important teachings or doctrines or beliefs held by the Christian church throughout the ages. If you've never really sought to understand it, I would say to you that there is There are few things more important to understand if you want to be a Christian and understand the gospel than understanding what the Trinity is. We have a booklet at our resource centers, free, called Understanding the Trinity that might help you with that. That's the first thing we see. The Lord, God the Father, is speaking to God the Son, and He's making a promise. He says, today I've begotten you. I'll make the nations your heritage, and as we see the Bible unfold, we we see from beginning to end, all the nations of the world, all the peoples, the ethnicities of the world are part of the inheritance of Jesus. And then he says something that seems unusual, you'll break them with a rod of iron. What does that mean? It speaks to the ultimate omnipotent authority of God the Son, the Son of God. If you were with us two weeks ago, we looked at a a passage in the book of Revelation in which John the Apostle gets this vision of this woman giving birth to a male child. And it's clear when you read the whole passage that child is Jesus. And the description of Revelation reads this way, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. This is talking about an ultimate ruler, one to whom is given all authority in heaven and on earth. It's looking to Jesus. Then finally, after the son speaks, the psalmist calls us to respond in this last 
fourth of the psalm. How do we respond to the fact that humanity rebels, but God is going to install a king, a king with ultimate authority over all things, whose heritage will be all the nations of the world? How do we respond? Three things the psalmist calls us to do. Number one, be wise and be warned. The gospel of Jesus, the fact that Jesus has been born He's lived on earth. He gave his life on the cross to, to sh shed his blood and atone for our sins and bear our judgment. The fact that Jesus has done that, been raised from the dead, provided our salvation, that's what we call the gospel. It, it comes with an invitation, whosoever will, to all who received him, who believed in his name. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me. Come. The gospel comes with an invitation to everyone open to all, comes with an invitation, but it also comes with a warning. And it's a warning that we reject at our own peril. <clears throat> Excuse me, the Gospel of John reads, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We're all invited. However, we read, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Psalm 2 is calling us to believe in the King, the eternal King that God the Father is going to install. Be wise and be warned. Secondly, the psalmist calls us to respond this way. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. I don't know about you, but those, those two words, rejoicing and trembling, don't quite seem to go together to me. Um, when the Bible says, serve the Lord with fear, it's talking about having a holy awe, a reverential respect, an understanding of the awesomeness and the omnipotence of Almighty God, honoring His very name. That's fear. That's the fear of the Lord, and it's a healthy thing, and it's a good thing. But how can you have that and also have joy, ultimate joy, surpassing fullness of joy in the presence of God? That is only possible when we know that we have been reconciled to our awesome God by one who knew no sin, by one who took our place, by one who himself stands before the Father to represent us eternally. That is Jesus. And through him, we can serve the Lord with both joy and reverence. And then finally, we get this unusual call from the psalmist to kiss the son. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Now, what does it mean to kiss the son? In Old Testament usage, to kiss, I believe, means to submit to the lordship of one. When the prophet Samuel anointed Saul as the first king of Israel, he anoints him with the oil and then he kisses, kisses him, essentially saying, my allegiance to you, you're now the king. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, God speaks to the prophet Elijah, and he says, I've got 7,000 people here in Israel 
who have not bowed the knee to Baal, who have not kissed him on the mouth. That is, they haven't, they haven't pledged allegiance to this idol. So to kiss the son, we understand, is, is submitting to his lordship. So the psalm writer says, as, as God is addressing human rebellion by installing his king, he's calling us to be wise and be warned to serve the Lord with both fear and joy and to kiss the son. But I want to come back to the big question now because it may still be a question for many of you. How do we know Psalm 2 is talking about Jesus? I mean, it could be talking about King David, right? And, and it's true that in many of the Psalms, it's interesting when you read them, there seems to be uh, something written that would apply to the earthly uh, present circumstances of King David. But as you continue to read the Psalm, often there's application to something yet future that could not apply to King David. It could only apply to someone who is eternal. And I believe that is the case with Psalm 2. And so I want to take a few moments this morning and just say, ask this question, who is the coming king of Psalm 2? And I'd like to try to answer it by looking at the New Testament. There's something very important to understand about the scripture, about the Bible. The Bible consists of 66 books, but it is a unified whole. One plan, one story, one divine author. And God, the divine author, does not contradict himself. He doesn't contradict himself in Old and New Testaments. What that means for us is that we can interpret Scripture with Scripture because it's one story given us by one divine author. So how does the New Testament help us understand the advent of Jesus told us in the second Psalm? Let's look first at the book of Acts. Here in the book of Acts, Peter and John had been out preaching and the religious leaders had said, stop, you can't speak anymore in the name of Jesus. So they had a dilemma. They weren't going to stop. But first they went back to the church and together they, they prayed. They lifted their voices to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, that's King David, lived a thousand years before Christ, said by the Holy Spirit, quote, and now recognize these verses. They're Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers against the Lord, against his anointed. Who's he talking about? Well, they continue. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod and Pontius Pilate. You see what they're saying? They're saying Jesus is the coming king predicted in Psalm 2. Jesus is the king God's going to set on his hill. Jesus is the king opposed by the earthly rulers. He's the anointed. He's the son we're called to kiss, to bow the knee to. He is Jesus. Anywhere else in the New Testament? In Acts chapter 13, the apostle Paul is preaching, and he's preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. People are listening to him. He talks about how Jesus was crucified, and then he's been raised from the dead. And hear how he explains the gospel and particularly note how he proves to his hearers that Jesus was raised from the dead. 
We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to their children by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second psalm, quote, you are my son, today I've begotten you. He's saying that when God said this, you're my son, you're the king I'm setting on my holy hill, today I've begotten you. He's talking about the resurrection of Christ Jesus who now rules and reigns with all authority in heaven and on earth. Who's the coming king of the second psalm? He's Jesus. What about the book of Hebrews? The writer of the book of Hebrews is talking about the fact that Christ Jesus is our great high priest. That means he stands before God on your behalf and mine. You and I may still stumble and fall, along our way, but we have one who represents us who is sinless and perfect and high and holy. He stands before the Father on our behalf. He shed his blood for our forgiveness. He credits us with his own righteousness. So Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, quote, Psalm 2 and verse 7, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Who is the coming king? of the second psalm. He is Jesus. I'll look at one last passage. <clears throat> it is incredibly important. It is, I believe, one of the, the passages that is most rich in Scripture as to who Jesus is and what he has done. It's Hebrews chapter 1. And the author begins this wonderful book of Hebrews, writing long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, quote, Psalm 2 verse 7, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Who is the king of Psalm 2? He is Jesus. He's Jesus. The one God has installed on the city of God as the remedy for the rebellion of this world. The one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And as we close, I want to look again at seven truths about Jesus here given us in Hebrews chapter 1. I think they're beautiful. Hebrews chapter 1, the verses we read, just read, these five verses tell us seven things about Christ. Number one, he's the one through whom God has spoken. Old times, the writer says, God spoke through the prophets, but he has spoken through his son. When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter and John, God the Father said, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Listen to him. He's the heir of all things. As the psalm said, all the nations of the world. You know, Jesus' inheritance is, is not the material stuff of creation. He can make whatever he wants to make. It's the people 
is the people who have turned to him and bowed the knee and kissed the son and said, you're my Lord, you're my Savior. We are his inheritance. The Lord's portion, the Bible says, is his people. What God loves is his people who love him. He is the one through whom the world was created. Did you know that everything was created through Jesus? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. You don't ever have to wonder what God is like. You can open the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you can see what God is like. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. You and I don't have to worry about the universe exploding or imploding or anything else as long as the Son of God, Jesus, is upholding it by the word of his power. Now these six things speak of his incredible authority, power, and beauty as the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. But the, the last one, the seventh, speaks of his personal love and care because he is the one who humbled himself became a baby and was born like one of his created ones and gave his life in humiliation on a cross and made purification for our sins. And having made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, thereby being installed as the anointed, the son, the king on God's holy hill, Fulfilling Psalm 2, the one who's made purification for our sins. How should we respond? How do we respond? We will respond the way King David was inspired to write 1,000 years before the birth of Christ, about the time that Psalm 2 was penned. Kiss the Son. Acknowledge His Lordship. Pledge allegiance to him. Humble yourself before him. Find refuge, saving refuge in what he's done on the cross for you. Put your faith in him. Follow him. Receive him. The one who gave his life for his inheritance who are his people. Would you join me as we pray about that? Father, I thank you for your Holy Spirit at work among us this morning. I pray for any who have never received the saving work of Jesus, that this would be the day you bring that one to know that he and he alone is the way and the truth and the life. Pray for the one who feels so distant from you, who feels their prayers haven't been heard, who feels rejected that you would bring that one back to the cross and the gospel of Jesus to find saving 
restoration there. I pray for one here today, Lord, who may feel broken in soul, rejected, downcast, that you, the great shepherd who restore the soul, would restore that one. And I pray your spirit work among us to bring encouragement, renewal of faith, joy, and healing grace. And we ask this in your great name. Amen.